From CPR News, it's Colorado Matters. More immigrants are heading to Colorado as shelters in New Mexico reach a breaking point. How a new group is stepping up to help and work with the city of Denver to accommodate the new arrivals. Then, Colorado-based Natural Grocers was recently named one of the fastest-growing retailers in the country. Why one expert says, that's a good thing the next time you go grocery shopping, no matter where you buy. Plus, who doesn't like to curl up with a good book, especially on a nice summer's day? We'll ask a local bookseller about the best reads for the season, all with a taste of Colorado and the West. And... Banjoist Bela Fleck's 37-year love affair with the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. It's been a few weeks since 55 migrants were bused from New Mexico to Denver because overcrowding at the border reached a breaking point. Now we know for sure that there are more on the way, and a Denver organization has stepped up to help. Denverite reporter Kevin Beatty is following the developments. He joins me. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Avery. Thanks for having me. How many more buses is Denver anticipating? So we know that there are three more confirmed. Uh, One showed up last week um, with uh, 44 people on board. And is Denver the only city where immigrants are being sent? So Annunciation House, uh, who uh, fields a lot of these people coming out of New Mexico and uh, El Paso, um, has sent other folks to Texas. But as far as I know, Denver and Dallas are the only two that I'm aware of. Part of this is that uh, they have been sending more and more people inland uh, further into Texas and New Mexico. And one of the reasons that people are coming to Denver is that those efforts have also been overcrowded. And to be clear, the migrants, they've been processed by the United States. They did not cross the border illegally. Um, New Mexico and Texas are actually paying to charter the buses to send them out to places like Colorado. Is there a reason Denver was chosen in particular? So uh, immigration advocacy groups are pretty tight knit. And I would expect and I'm speculating here um, that they knew that there were was a uh, high volume of people willing to help uh, here in the city. Um, I should say uh, at this point, you're right um, that these folks uh, were released by immigration uh, authorities uh, legally into the country. Um, And it's not just people from South America and Central America. Just last weekend, there was a a large swell of people from the Democratic Republic of Congo who showed up. So we're talking about people from all over the world who are showing up at the border. Mm. And I understand a Denver organization has stepped up to help coordinate these future busloads of immigrants um, from New Mexico and Texas. Uh, That's right. It's uh, Mile High Ministries. Um, They're a group that works with people who are formerly homeless uh, and people in poverty, um, and they've funded a halftime position, uh, at least for a month right now, uh, to help coordinate resources and stuff like that. Gotcha. And the organization, it's Mile High Ministries, like you said. Tell me about them. Do they have a lot of experience dealing with immigration issues? So they have worked with migrants. In in their words, they work with people who are in poverty and oppressed. So migrants fit the bill for that. But they're not one of the groups that are sort of typically on the forefront of this kind of work in the city. So, uh, yeah, uh, they're sort of entering a new space here. And will their coordinator, what will they do exactly, this new position that they've added for 30 days? Sure. So what I've heard is that there's a there's a lot of people, uh, or the, sorry, there's a lot of resources that are coming in. They just, um, there hasn't been anyone dedicated to sort of deal with where that's going to actually live until it's deployed into some of these churches and places where people may be staying. So uh, when a bus comes, uh, it's when it's announced that a bus will be coming, uh, this coordinator will sort of help uh, 
organize where the bus will show up, uh, which churches will be housing them, and then um, help organize this army of volunteers who want to help cook meals or provide f- uh, clothing uh, or just just support um, and sort of make sure that none of their uh, efforts are um, redundant and that it's all sort of happening efficiently. Um, and you said, uh, yes, that this pr- uh, position is going for 30 days. Um as a result of the tariff issue that's going on with Mexico right now uh, and the possibility that Mexico may be militarizing their borders too, uh, Mile High Ministries and, and the groups that are working on this aren't exactly sure if the influx of people coming into the uh, U.S. side will remain that way. So they're sort of playing it touch and go um, to make sure that they're not hiring somebody for a year uh, when maybe the flows will uh, decrease. So there's a possibility this it could have been a longer position, but they just want to make sure and see what the situation is at the end of a month. Yeah, the initial plan was to raise a little more than $30,000 to fund a halftime position for a year, but they're sort of playing it by ear right now. And as I said earlier, a few weeks ago, 55 people arrived in Denver from the border. What did that scene look like? Who stepped up to help? So um, there were three churches where people stayed. Um, I visited a church in North Capitol Hill. Um, it was a day after... Um, the, the folks that arrived, they, they came in at two o'clock in the morning. Folks who were there said people were tired. There were a lot of kids. When I got there, um, there were little kids running around. There were people just kind of hanging out on cots. Uh, there were cots filling the basement of this church. Um, and so it was a, it was a pretty interesting scene. People were generally just pretty tired and ready to move on to wherever they were headed. And you met some of the families who were on the first bus. What did you learn about their situations? Yeah. So the folks that I spoke to are seeking asylum. They made their asylum cases and they're sort of just waiting for their day in court. Uh, A lot of these people have friends or family around the country that they're moving on to stay with and they would have gone directly to them if they had phones or sort of means to get in touch with those people and get plane tickets or bus tickets, stuff like that. Um, But folks were pretty excited to be in Denver. Um, They said, you know, one lady said that she had to sleep outside one night while she was sort of making her way through the process. Um, And uh, one guy said they had been treated like kings and and they were just overwhelmed by the support and the resources that were there at their disposal. Well, and it's still a journey for folks even once they've made it into the United States. Um, Have you heard concerns from anyone in the community about the study taking on this responsibility? So uh, generally people are pretty supportive. There have been some... um, some comments on online that I've seen when stories like this and, and after this one came out that uh, Denver should be putting its resources to help its homeless populations, for example, and why worry about people who are coming in from the border? Uh, I think the irony there is that Mile High Ministries does work with those groups. Um, and uh, I think it sort of demonstrates a lack of understanding that it's not the city that's actually funding this stuff. There are people who are donating their money to this cause, and they may very well be donating money to uh, help folks living on the street as well. And do you know when the next bus is set to arrive? Um, I don't. The groups who are working on this stuff are pretty tight-lipped about this right now. Um, I think they're concerned that um, groups who oppose immigration and and migrants might sort of show up and harass people. And so they've been sort of um, holding that information pretty tight um, to to their chests. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Kevin Beatty is a reporter for Denverite covering immigration. Denverite is now a part of Colorado Public Radio. When Amazon bought Whole Foods two years ago, some analysts thought it would chew up its competitors. But a smaller rival from Colorado is holding its own. Natural Grocers has just been named one of the country's fastest-growing retailers. What does that mean for you? It's a good time to buy groceries. That's according to Jim Lee. He's a business professor at the University of Southern California and the former president of Wild Oats, a grocery chain that was bought by Whole Foods. 
Welcome to Colorado Matters. Well, good morning, and thanks for having me on the program, Avery. We'll get to natural grocers in a minute, but first I want to ask about Whole Foods. When it was purchased by Amazon in 2017, other grocery store stocks plummeted. Why is the Amazon Whole Foods such a threat? Well, I I think in some ways it's an overreaction. Um, Whole Foods is a very successful company, and of course everyone knows the Amazon story. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, in the natural products arena, the pie is just growing, and, and it's and it's growing um, rapidly, and it's becoming much much bigger. So, um, the acquisition of Whole Foods has has not had the impact yet that a lot of people thought it might. Nonetheless, Whole Foods, I think, is is doing pretty well. I think they're working on their their price image. They've always suffered from that whole paycheck label. Um, I think they are becoming more competitively priced. And kind of in a stealth way, since that acquisition, Whole Foods has opened up over 30 new locations at a time when a lot of um, older line grocery retailers have not been growing as rapidly. And Natural Grocers, though it competes with Whole Foods, and its sales grew by 10% last year. Um, so many p- people may remember it as Vitamin Cottage, but it's not a mom and pop anymore. Annual sales top $800 million. Um, what is it doing right? Well, several things. And I do remember um, when I was with Wild Oats, um, you know, as a Vitamin Cottage. But, you know, they operate 145 stores. You know, I think they're in almost 20 states. Um, and they have a, a great positioning. One is they they have a firm belief in what they call a culture of empowerment. And, and this is what made Wild Oats successful, certainly has made uh, Whole Foods successful, is the people um, who work for these kinds of companies, it's not just a job. Uh, they feel like they're on a mission, you know, in many ways to, to change the world or certainly um, to, you know, protect the planet and, and to provide um a healthier lifestyle uh, and a more nutritional lifestyle for their customers. And um, I think when you believe that people matter and you have a culture of empowerment, um, it's very effective. One other key point is uh, the natural grocers stores are only about a third the size of a whole food store. So, you know, it's it's less capital investment uh, to open one of them up. Um, there are fewer moving parts, um, less labor to staff it. Um, and, you know, I think, I think they're really on point. Uh, you know, I'm not surprised they're growing so rapidly. Um, and their execution has been very good as well. So, you know, hats off to, to natural grocers. They're, good job. And I'm interested also just in the picture of groceries as a whole. Most people don't do their grocery shopping at Whole Foods or Natural Grocers. Natural and organic foods, they make up a really small sliver of total grocery sales. Why do they get so much attention? Well, I I think people always are excited about, uh, you know, the new thing. Um, But I would would differ a little bit in that uh, this is not just, it's certainly way past being a fad. Uh, it has become a strong trend. Um, in fact, um, the Organic Trade Association just reported that last year organic sales, which is just a component of natural products, um, exceeded $50 billion. So 
It may still be a sliver of total grocery sales, but that sliver is growing rapidly. Um, And it also resonates strongly with the growing um, uh, segment of the population that is so important, and that's the millennials. This is a challenge that old-line grocers, conventional grocers, if you will, um, and companies, consumer product good companies, um, they face – they're having trouble um, attracting millennials. And that's why you see companies like Whole Foods, uh, Natural Grocers, Trader Joe's, Sprouts, and others – getting some really solid footing and growing their their business. And I think you said earlier the pie is growing. So this is the part of the pie that is growing where they're attracting more of these millennials. That's true. But I, I think I think all consumers, um, maybe not all, but the vast majority, uh, you know, as baby boomers, and I'm one of them, as we come to grips with our own mortality, um, you know, we want to live longer. We want to live better. So we're we're seeking out, you know, uh, products and, you know, trying to gain more knowledge, um, you know, to um, to have a better lifestyle and, 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 and to have more uh, quality in our life. And and so these companies that offer natural products and also information, which is critical to um, to you know that brand, um, are um, are growing. Um, there's there's a ripe audience um, for what they offer. And how are mainline supermarkets like Kroger, which owns King Supers, how are they reacting to these challenges? Well, they're not they're not standing on the sidelines, and I also applaud the efforts of a lot of the uh, conventional grocers. Um, uh, for their efforts in this arena, um, because for one, natural products, organic products, um, are much more accessible and more affordable, and I believe the quality is, has been improved um, in part. Um, you know, I think Whole Foods, uh, natural grocers kind of blaze the trail, uh, but operators like Kroger, King Supers, City Markets, um, uh, they've taken notice and, and, and they've developed their own products. They've uh, put more of the natural products um, in, into their stores. They provide, um, you know, some of them have nutritionists on staff. Um, so it, it's just become a very competitive arena. And just like you started the program, you know, it's a great time to be a grocery shopper because you have more choices. There's better value, better quality. You know, it's uh, the bar's been raised and everyone has higher expectations. And how important is online shopping to the future of grocery stores, mainstream or natural foods? Well, again, uh, much like the um, you know acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon, uh, a lot of a lot of attention is given to this in. It's also um, it's a sweet spot for millennials, no doubt about it, and other demographics as well. Um, it still represents a relatively small portion of overall grocery sales, less than ten percent. But it also is growing rapidly. Um, you know, uh, we had uh, my granddaughter and her husband, um, like some millennials do. You know, they lived with us for a while. And every day, that smiling face, you know, from Amazon in the box would show up on the porch. And, and I really, I said, hey, hey, buddy, really, one tube of toothpaste, they, you ordered that and they shipped it, you know. So it, it's, it's funny at times, but it's a very serious threat. Again, a threat the to competition. brick well, and mortar stores to, or? Yeah, well, to brick and mortar stores, but they're, they are not sitting idly by. They are um, rising to the occasion. 
because you really have to uh, you have to deliver what the customer expects. And you know they may like the experience of shopping in a brick and mortar. They may like the convenience of being able to go online and um, and maybe get it delivered to their home. Or uh, what they really hope to accomplish is what they call BOPUS, uh, buy online, pick up in store, uh, because then that uh, negates the last mile, which is the most expensive part of, uh, of the online shopping uh, for the uh, retailers. Um, you know, so uh, they're getting into the game, too. Um, you know, Kroger has is, is, is made a huge investment, um, you know, in their online game. Um, and then, you know, the largest retailer in the world, Walmart, you know, in recent years has really um, uh, gotten a lot better um, at, at online. They're, they're really growing that business as well. So, again, it's a great time to be a grocery shopper. So many choices, so much value, so many ways to go about this. Well, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's, it's been my it's my my, my pleasure. It's uh, you know uh, I spent over forty years in in the grocery industry, and it's you know I'm now privileged to to teach in the food industry management program at USC in the Marshall School of Business, mm-hmm. and uh, the students there keep me engaged, you know, and keep me um, you know Thank passionate you. about the business, which I am. Thank you, Jim Lee is a professor of food industry management at University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. Colorado-based Natural Grocers was recently named one of the country's fastest growing. Retailers. Many of us buy bottled water at the store, but how much of that is coming from Colorado's iconic mountain streams? That's what Sarah Demiola of Lakewood asked through Colorado Wonders. Has sourcing bottled water in Colorado become big business in the state? It's hard to find much information about where bottled water comes from or how much bottled water companies have bought into the water rights of the West. Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce headed to Buena Vista to find out. So I don't know what I expected a mountain water bottling facility to look like, but I think at least part of me, perhaps foolishly, thought it might sound like this. That's the Arkansas River here in Buena Vista. But in reality, the Arrowhead water facility here in town sounds like this. Yeah, pretty quiet. It's in a parking lot next to a gas station and a liquor store. And this facility, it's remarkably nondescript. It looks like just a small brown wooden barn, maybe, with a green metal roof. There are some tanks inside that, of course, I assume are water tanks. No signs that say Arrowhead or Nestle anywhere. They don't make a nuisance of themselves as far as the trucks and things go. They work mostly at night. That's Chad Foreman. He works at the adjacent liquor store. And they probably don't want to draw attention to themselves, I would think. It was really controversial when Nestle came to town 10 years ago, with locals fighting every step of the way. They wondered how a water-starved state could afford to allow bottling companies to take limited supplies. Our questioner, Sarah Demiola, wonders, too, how much bottled water goes out of the state. So, the best person to talk to about this stuff... My name is Kevin Ryan. I'm the state engineer and the director of the Division of Water Resources. Now, Ryan and his team essentially keep track of all the water coming into the state, all the water leaving it, staying here, all of it. But the thing is, bottled water is basically all counted as going out of state since it leaves the system. Bottled water, by nature, is going to be fully consumed by someone. It's not like irrigation water where it's going to be applied to the land. And part of that water is going to run off back to the river. 
No, this is actually really, really interesting to hear. That's Sarah again. Next, she wants to know about how a bottler attains water rights. Well, in some cases, a company just has a deal to use the water a city supplies its customers, maybe treating it or adding minerals along the way. I've heard those people, maybe you have too, say, why are you spending $1.99 or $2 on bottled water when you know that's the same thing that comes out of your tap? Sometimes it seems it's true. Secondly, and this is how it is with Nestle in Buena Vista, the company acquires surface water rights, in that case, from the Arkansas River watershed. But especially in strained watersheds like the Arkansas... The company needs to replace that like amount of water. Where are they going to get that water? They have to lease it from somewhere. They may have to purchase other water rights. That's because all of the water in the Arkansas watershed was spoken for by senior water rights holders before Nestle came in. So the company has to replace what it uses. It's a zero impact. So far, I'm feeling pretty proud of how we're managing, I guess, our water. And then the third type of water right, a company may have access to a deep underground aquifer. These are basically buried, finite pools. They are prehistoric The water was deposited there 15, 17, 30, 60 million years ago. The bottler has to use it slowly, up to 1% of what they own per year for 100 years. Now, let's get back to Sarah's main question, the total amount of bottled water in Colorado. It's good to look at this in relative terms and, and in units we can understand. Kevin Ryan says he looked at the amount of annual Colorado water use for one pretty average size bottled water company. Taking a quick look at that, probably about 0.0006% is what one company was responsible for. And the total amount used by all similar commercial water users, that includes a lot more than bottled water companies, amounts to five one-hundredths of 1%. Yeah, it's not as much as I was thinking. When you say big names like Nestle, you know, you think big, big, big. So it's maybe they're just tapping a little bit of water in our state. Um, A proverbial (laughs) drop in the bucket, as they say. Just a drop. Meanwhile, agriculture accounts for 86% of the state's water use in a particular year. Dan Boyce, CPR News. If summertime has you dreaming of stretching out with a book, maybe in a hammock or by a pool, we have some recommendations. We asked two Colorado booksellers to give their picks for books, all with a flavor of Colorado or the West. Joining us is Nicole Magistro, owner of the Bookworm of Edwards. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. And Bethany Strout is the buyer for Tattered Cover Bookstores. Welcome, Bethany. Thank you. Bethany, you have a novel you say is the perfect high-octane read for the summer. Tell us about Recursion by Blake Crouch. Yeah, so Blake Crouch is a Colorado author, and he writes thrillers with a sci-fi twist. So this book, which just came out this month, is the story of a cop with a tragic past, of course, who's investigating an outbreak of false memory syndrome, where people remember entirely other versions of their lives. Um, This book is a page Turner. It was full of twists that I didn't see coming. And the exploration of how our memories make us was really fascinating. This is like the plane read, the beach read, the camping read. And that book is Recursion by Blake Crouch. Nicole, you have the latest novel by Colorado author Peter Heller. Tell us about The River. Well, 
Peter Heller has taught me to love many, many things, um, among them post-apocalyptic fiction, which I didn't typically like before, and fly fishing. Um, In the river, Peter Heller takes us on a terrifyingly beautiful canoe trip, and um, he weaves friendship together with nature writing, adventure, and it's a simple narrative which comes to kind of a heart-pounding climax, and there's paddling on every page. And although this book takes place in southeastern Canada and northeast United States, it has all the flavors that we love here in Colorado. And that's Peter Heller's The River. Um, Nicole, you've also brought us a collection of short stories, Sabrina and Karina. We spoke to the author, Kali Fajardo-Anstein, in April about the book, and she talked about her family's strong ties to Denver. Every day of my life, I think about the fact that my great-grandmother's house is, you know, it's in five points. I walk by it. Sometimes I see it. I have a great-great-auntie whose home was on the west side, and sometimes I go down Galapago Street and I look at that house, too. And I think about how the city's changed so much, but underneath those layers of change, my family has just always been here. This is our heartbeat. This is where we're from. Nicole, what made you like these stories? Well, the voice is so distinct in every story, um, spanning across the entire 20th century and telling the stories of all the Denver neighborhoods, a different Denver than we have today. And um, I think one that is always in gratitude for people um, and for family connection. Um, I just, my heart just was with every single character in every single story of this book. And again, that book is Sabrina and Karina by Kali Fajardo-Anstein. Bethany, you have another collection of short stories to recommend. It's called The Aerialists. Tell us about it. Yeah, so it's been a bountiful year for Denver debut literary talents. And in addition to Sabrina and Karina, we also have Aerialists by Mark Mayer. And he uses the circus as a jumping off point for um, some dark stories, some heartwarming stories, again, set in Colorado and beyond. Um, just a wonderful talent and one to watch, I think. I know short stories are one that I enjoy so much during the summer. It's that little bit of that you can read in the plane on the beach. Nicole, you've brought us a memoir, Deep Creek by Pam Houston. Pam Houston will be a familiar name to some. Tell us about Houston and her new book. Well, um, Pam lives in Creed, and she's owned a ranch there for a quarter of a century. She bought the ranch on really a wing and a prayer from a woman who loved her book, Cowboys Are My Weakness. And um, the mountains, the ranch... um, the life journey that Pam takes to sort of accept mothering from the ranch and really um, coming of age in adulthood, from Mm. adulthood to midlife. This is a true Western classic. Um, There are sections about wildfire. There are sections about um, taking care of livestock. There are sections about writing and natural beauty. It's an amazing, redemptive and empowering book. And we spoke with Pam Houston in March about the book and talked to her about how her animals and how she's given them people names. Jordan and Natasha are Icelandic sheep. Isaac and Simon are mini donkeys. Um, I have chickens. I have Irish wolfhounds. Uh, Well, at the moment, just one. I lost my William recently, but Olivia, and I'm about to get a new Irish wolfhound named Henry. He needs a home, and he's coming to the ranch. So, yeah, um, Yeah, I think of my animals as uh, members of the family, so they deserve uh, serious names. The book is Deep Creek by Pam Houston. 
You both have a few books for young readers. Bethany, tell us about Tree of Dreams for middle schoolers. Yeah, this is the perfect book to hand to your child for summer reading. Set in the fictional Colorado town of Heartbeat Springs and written by Fort Collins author Resaw, this book follows two 12-year-olds on a trip to the Amazon. It deals with friendship, advocating for environmental and indigenous rights, and lots of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) And again, that book is Tree of Dreams. And Bethany, you have another book for kids. This one's a picture book. It's called You Are Home, an Ode to the National Parks by Evan Turk. We also recently interviewed Durango author Kate Sieber about her book for young readers called National Parks USA. Why did you pick You Are Home? I have to say that You Are Home is shaping up to be one of my absolute favorite books of the year. It makes me tear up a little when I read it. Its message is really you are home in our glorious national parks, no matter who you are, where you're from. Um, Evan Turk, the author and illustrator, is from Littleton, I believe, and Rocky Mountain National Park, Mesa Verde, the Great Sand Dunes are all featured in this book, among many others. It's really the perfect book to share with children or to keep on your coffee table and sort of remind you of the next trip you might be taking. And the book is called You Are Home, and Ode to National Parks by Evan Turk. Nicole, last but not least, you've brought a children's book, Being Edie is Hard Today. I love the title. So maybe a chance to relax with kids, say while camping, and read this book over the summer. Tell us about this one. This is a beautiful picture book, and it's a really touching portrayal of an inventive child and her bad day at school. Um, But really, the, the Pencil and watercolor drawings are so finely made, um, and Edie sort of sees herself as different animal characters in the book. It's really a way for children um, to be shown in a way that's not like where we have to fix them, and if they have a bad day, we have to make it better, but instead for them to rely on themselves and build their own ways to cope with what comes to them each day. Um, Elizabeth Berglund is the illustrator of this book, and she is a Colorado native and went to CU. Ben Brasheres is the author. So together they create this amazing story of resilience. And that's a children's book called Being Edie is Hard Today. Um, And I wonder, this is a time when electronics are so prevalent. Can you tell me more about how you can get kids to read, especially during the summer? For me, it's curling up um, maybe after a busy day outside and taking time to relax. My seven-year-old son and I love to read at the end of the day together. Um, And I know there are so many great recommendations, but kids really want to connect with characters and see themselves in characters. And there are so many opportunities to do that in books. I would also say um, I'm a big believer in letting your child read what they want. So if they want to read a graphic novel, if they want to read a book of sports facts, which is my nephew's personal favorite thing to look at, if they want to read a magazine, um, I think all of those things are equally valuable and uh, and will encourage them to find a wider love of reading and books. And I, I wonder if you have recommendations for helping them explore those many different kinds of books. 
Absolutely. I think nonfiction is a great way to get kids connected, like whether it's sports or science, um, but really like illustrated chapter books are more and more popular. Kids can actually write their own graphic novels. Um, There are so many tools that when you come to the bookstore, you can connect to the various styles of books. Thanks to you both for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Nicole Magistro is owner of the Bookworm of Edwards. Bethany Strout is the buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. They joined us to offer their recommendations for summer reading. All the books have connections to Colorado or the West. We'll have a list of books later today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Devices like phones and watches collect more and more information on users. From sleep patterns to steps, e-cigarettes could one day do the same and track users' consumption. As CPR health reporter John Daly tells us, that raises new privacy concerns. Last year, the high school in the mountain town of Nederland got an email out of the blue. School nurse Kari Green says it came from someone then working with Juul Labs, which makes the country's top e-cigarette. The email appeared to be from somebody employed by Juul offering education services for schools. Juul's consultant was a retired educator himself. The message described a new Juul program to help schools prevent students from using e-cigarettes. But a detail near the bottom of the email caught Green's eye. The email said Juul would soon pilot a device to not only disable Juul products in schools, but also notify administrators where and when they're being used. I read that and just thought, how the hell are they going to be able to do that? Green understood Juuls have a battery and that the device vaporizes nicotine. But the email indicated a level of technological sophistication she hadn't considered. She wondered just how smart is the technology in a Juul. That's something Tista Ghosh wants to know, too. My son says he sees a vaping in the bathrooms all the time. He's in sixth grade. So Ghosh is a mom and the chief medical officer in Colorado, where a third of high school seniors now vape. As e-cigarettes promise to get more high-tech, Ghosh worries about user privacy. If any company, I'm not picking on Juul per se, but any company were, be able to, were to monitor and gather data on your use, I think that would be a little bit scary. Inside a Juul, there's a tiny circuit board and a battery. Ghost wonders what information the devices could collect on miners now or in the future. What data are they getting? What data are they monitoring? Are they monitoring how much a kid is using? A little detail in the patents for e-cigarettes has caught the attention of public health researcher Dr. Greg N. Conley. He's a consultant formerly with Northeastern University, and he's looked at patents that mentioned pre-programmed algorithms. Conley is concerned about what instructions Juul may have coded into its devices and whether they could help promote addiction. Just what's in those algorithms? Who is really controlling the battery here? Is it the smoker? Juul declined interview requests. It didn't specifically answer a question via email about algorithms in its devices. A spokesman did send a link to a video of the company's founders. We started this project with the firm belief that innovation could address 
all of the problems associated with smoking. The two Stanford grads say they started Juul to help adult smokers of traditional cigarettes quit. Key to that is to mimic the experience of smoking cigarettes, and Juul's spokesman says its technology ensures the vapor is at the ideal temperature. I wanted to know more about what the little computer chip inside a Juul actually does, so... Hello, Juul. I purchased one and visited researcher John Vulcans. His big focus isn't usually tobacco, it's air pollution. He's a mechanical engineer. All right, now let's take a look at this. In a lab at Colorado State University, Vulcans grabs some tools and cracks open a Juul. Vulcans describes how the e-cigarette works. It has an airflow sensor. When a user sucks on the device, the sensor tells the battery to heat a coil. It turns the liquid in the pod into a vapor. You inhale that into your body and it deposits in your lungs and it delivers the product almost directly into your bloodstream. That product is nicotine. And controlling that delivery inside a Juul's aluminum shell is the fingernail-sized computer chip. That's the circuit board right there. Vulcan says it's there to help ensure the battery doesn't overheat or catch on fire and also control the flow of nicotine. There are lots of ways where the sensors in this device can be used with a circuit board to make the device act smarter. Smarter from the standpoint of delivering the product to the body. The potential for a smarter e-cigarette to learn more about a user would be a major development because Americans are buying millions of Juul devices each year. Vulcan says smart technology could possibly play a role in making e-cigarettes hard to quit. One of the primary outcomes of delivering nicotine to the body is to get the body addicted to it. But the industry says the technology inside e-cigarettes is meant to do just the opposite. The president of the American Vaping Association is Gregory Conley. His name is similar to the public health researcher you heard earlier in the story. To the idea that e-cigarettes could be wired to deliberately promote addiction... Conley says, That is crazy talk. No, it's temperature control. And yet, major tobacco companies are developing ways to track e-cigarette users. The future is in being able to see visually on your phone how many times today have I puffed on this device. That technology is right on the horizon. Juul's CEO told the Financial Times recently... It is testing an app that would monitor via Bluetooth how many puffs a vapor is taking and coach them to manage their nicotine product. But Juul's CEO says the point is to help users quit traditional cigarettes. He described how future devices would require users to verify their age in order to limit underage use. And the Vaping Association's Conley says that advanced technology would get plenty of review before reaching consumers. All of these innovations will need to go through the Food and Drug Administration. So you're going to see a lot of safe features. But that's not enough to reassure Dr. Robin Dieterding, a pediatric lung specialist at Children's Hospital Colorado. The FDA declined to comment, but Dieterding says it isn't doing enough to keep young people safe. I think the FDA needs to own this. We are behind in this epidemic, and I look to the FDA as the federal regulating agency to take a strong lead on this and not pass on it. The technology appears to be racing ahead of the regulation. Public health researcher Dr. Greg N. Conley says he grew more worried after the FDA's recent green light for the ICOS. It's a new electronic cigarette device with Bluetooth technology. Its maker is tobacco giant Philip Morris, a rival to Juul. 
And Conley says as the new products arrive, the FDA hasn't looked closely enough at what's already inside e-cigarettes. FDA should be regulating circuit boards. Yet we haven't heard one beep out of FDA. Longtime tobacco researcher Stanton Glantz shares that concern. Andy notes money is pouring into the fast-growing industry. Top U.S. cigarette manufacturer Altria invested nearly $13 billion in Juul. Glantz sees the emerging electronic cigarette landscape as a marriage of big tobacco and big tech. To me, it's Facebook meets a drug cartel. These companies are selling addictive drugs and they should not be allowed to do person-by-person monitoring of behavior. Glantz says studying the future of e-cigarette technology couldn't be more urgent. The U.S. Surgeon General says vaping by teens is now an epidemic. Without checks, Glantz says, we could see a whole new generation addicted to nicotine. I'm John Daly, CPR News. The 46th Telluride Bluegrass Festival kicks off Thursday when thousands of fans descend on the tiny mountain town for four days of music. To say Telluride holds a special place in the heart of banjoist Bela Fleck is an understatement. The 15-time Grammy winner has become a fixture at the festival, making his debut there in 1982 with new grass revival and returning every year since. This year's appearance will be with his longtime band, The Flectones, who are currently on a 30th anniversary tour. Let's listen to an excerpt of Fleck's recent conversation with my colleague, Ryan Warner. What do you remember about that first performance at Telluride? I was scared silly. For one thing, when I joined Newgrass Revival, I was taking their old banjo player's place. So there was a part of me that felt very, like I really wanted to do well. And, and people weren't necessarily happy to see me there. You know, that first year, I was a brand new, fresh-faced kid. And mm, they had a lot of love for court. to feel that. That is a hard thing. You know, I, I can look back on it. Now, I, I was... I wasn't afraid, but I was, I really wanted them to like me. And I, all I could do was be myself. And over the course of years at Telluride, I found my place there and um, got to the point where I was invited to do my own thing there. And and gradually, you know, I've been there every year now since 82. So I've done a lot of things there. When I get nervous, I think you can hear it in my voice, my lack of breath. How does nervousness manifest for you? I think if I'm too nervous, uh, I might start playing too hard and then lose my ability to be a flexible player. That's the worst thing that can happen or get so tight in my shoulders that I'm just not loose. And I, I was telling someone this not too long ago. I've never seen a great improviser who was tense. Hmm. It doesn't really work. It's the opposite of what you need to be playing freely because a lot of the music that I do has a lot of improv in it. And really good improv is sort of about being loose, relaxed, and letting your unconscious mind take over and direct, you know, you direct it. But a lot of stuff is sort of happening very spontaneously. And yeah, you can't be spontaneous when you're tense. So I think I've gotten pretty good at being really tense till I get on stage and then dropping the tense thing because it it runs in my family getting up tight. So (laughs) I tried to get over it. This year at Telluride, you'll play with the Flectones and the Telluride House Band, which has become 
a festival mainstay. It's kind of who's who of bluegrass with Sam Bush on mandolin, Jerry Douglas on dobro, Edgar Meyer on bass, Brian Sutton guitar, Stuart Duncan fiddle. I mean, talk about a super group. Yeah, those are the guys I always wanted to play with if I was going to get to play bluegrass. And especially since Tony Rice hasn't been able to play, Brian's been an awesome guitar player to step in there. But Sam and Jerry were my they, – they were there before I got on the scene. And then Stuart showed up and I kind of helped get him into that scene a little bit. You know, I, I think he would say that. So that that's just – those are the cats. Now also, we you know, Edgar Meyer being there is sort of – kicks it into, oh, we could do anything with this band because Edgar's <laughs> a great classical virtuoso and a great jazz player. And he also knows everything about how to make bluegrass bass work too. So that band is just a joy. And unfortunately, we only do it that one time a year usually. So it's very special. Well, a man came by the other day, a hunting man with labor. Told him I hadn't seen the guy, so don't he ask my neighbor. So come on, boys, and get your gals and keep your feet up higher. Don't let no one steal your gal, just hold her a little tighter. So pick away on the old banjo, keep that guitar strumming. Put more water in the soup, there's better time to come in. Do you guys get a chance to rehearse as the Telluride House Band, or is it just kind of natural at this point? We do rehearse. Now, we could just send a set list around to agree on the songs and, and say who's going to start it and wing it, and it would work out just fine, because a lot of times we end up doing that on a few songs every year anyway. And we try to come up with some goofy ideas, like one year I had the idea of doing guitars and, or if, you know, other years we do a Stevie Wonder song, things that take a little bit of, of rehearsal. Uh, that we really want to get right. and But we really enjoy that afternoon, usually at Edgar's house, because everybody lives here in Nashville. We we enjoy that afternoon of just getting together and playing and seeing what everybody wants to do. And usually there's two or three really hard things and then a bunch of easy stuff, but we just want to get the vocal harmonies right and figure out how, how we can make it fun and special. And try not to get too creative because we're only going to play the music once and then next year it's going to be a whole new set list. Stevie Wonder, wow. Finally, 30 years of Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. Are you surprised it's lasted this long? You know, I'm just really very grateful. Like, we, we got together at my house last week to play, and so we started listening to some of the old stuff. And we all were just kind of, we found this tune called Jekyll and Hyde and Ted and Alice, which we had forgotten about. And then we listened to it. We were all kind of in shock at how much work we had put into this thing and how cool it sounded to us. Of course, when you hear something you did yourself from years ago, it's activating old memories. And it was just so much fun just to have the four of us just like we were in 1988, like when we first met and we're playing, working on stuff, that sitting together and working on music together, not only did we love it, but we really sounded good doing it and nobody else could sound like that. And, uh, and here we all still are, and we love each other, and we don't play together all the time, but when we do, boy, it's special. It's a great musical relationship, a great personal relationship of our lives, one of the greatest ones. I also love that your canon is so large you can actually forget a tune. Um, thanks so much, Bela Fleck, for being with us. My pleasure.
Bela Fleck speaking with Ryan Warner. This week, the Grammy-winning banjoist will make his 38th consecutive appearance at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, which starts Thursday and runs through Sunday. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.